Hey, you have your Bibles open to this fascinating story, and I love this story, this Old Testament story, the story of Ruth. Here's what we said. This story is full of tension and drama. It's even full of romance, we said. And last week, all we did was we said, hey, let's look at chapter one, and we stopped, and we want to pick it back up this week. But here's what we said about chapter one last week. If you were here, we said chapter one is about real life. It's about real problems. Anybody experience real problems in their real life? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't raise your hand, you haven't lived long enough. You will, okay? And how real people respond when their life turns really bad. That's what this story is about. Chapter one, their story gets really bad really quick because it's a story of a man, Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, their two boys, Malon and Kilion, some cool names, right? And we find that their life goes bad really quick because they lived in the darkest period of history that Israel had up to date, where everybody's doing whatever they wanted to do, right? And so what we see when we enter their story is God's hand of discipline upon his people. He doesn't want to just leave them to their own devices, and a famine breaks out in the land. As that famine breaks out in the land, we see that there's three people in the story that respond to life getting really bad in three very different ways. First, we see Elimelech, the husband, the father, he decides, I'm gonna lead, I'm gonna lead my family into the land of compromise. And he literally takes them to this place called Moab. If you weren't here last week, go online, check it out. But it's an incredible place with an incredible history. People are known for their sexual promiscuity. They worship the demon god Chemosh. They sacrifice their children to that god. I mean, this is a place that was so out there. God said, I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to marry there. I want you to stay away from there. Incredible history. And what Elimelech decided was, you know something, I got to do what I feel is right in my own heart. And he literally walked his family into the land of compromise. And as you read their story, and you should, we see that compromise was contagious because his boys ended up marrying two Moabite gals. Beyond that, his compromise affected other people. And we see when you get to the end of chapter chapter 1, verse 7, you see that not only did Elimelech die, his two boys die, but now you have these three gals that are widowed in this land of Moab. All of a sudden, Elimelech's widow, whose name is Naomi, she hears that they got food back in Bethlehem, and she's like, I'm going to go back there. The two daughters-in-law say, we're going to go with you. They start back to Bethlehem, and as they're on their way back to Bethlehem, we find really quick that Naomi has a response to life getting real bad, and she gets real bitter. (laughs) And as she gets real bitter, she starts to blame God. She starts to only see her own pain. She can't even relate with their pain. And then at one point, when the drama is high, she turns to her daughters-in-law, and she says this, y'all go back to your homes. Go back to those foreign gods. She literally, in her bitterness, repels them from God and wants them to go back to their demon god, Chemosh. It's interesting. You see, bitterness can be deep-rooted, and we just talked real honestly about that last week. And some of us in the room are bitter because of what life has handed us over the years. Well, Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, decides, I'm going to head back home. I hear you. I'm going to take your word on this. I'm getting out of here. But Ruth, it says, clung to her because Ruth responded by clinging to hope. And she said, I believe somehow that hope is found in the God of Naomi, as bitter as she might be. And so her people are going to be my people. Where she goes, that's where I'm going to go. And here's what Ruth said. She said, I'm going to connect to the people of God. 
I'm going to somehow recognize that God's presence is here, and I'm going to trust my life in God's hands because I figure my life away from my home with God is better than my life at home without God. And that's where chapter one ended. Literally, they're standing there. The barley harvest is getting ready to start in Bethlehem. Let's pick the story back up, chapter two. It's a fascinating story. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to make some observations. Chapter 2, verse 1, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing. If you write in your Bibles, and I would recommend you do, I would underline those words, a man of standing. This man is a strong man. That's what that means. He is literally a warrior. He's a wealthy man. We know that. And he's from the clan of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Verse 2, and Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. They're needy. You have Naomi and Ruth. They would have been at the lowest rung of the ladder in society. They can't help themselves. They're marginalized. They're vulnerable. So Ruth looks at Naomi, and she's industrious. She says this, let me go to the fields and glean. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. I want to teach you something if you don't already know this. This idea of gleaning was something God instituted among his people to take care of the poor and the marginalized. He said, leave the margins of your field. Don't harvest them so that people who can't help themselves, the poor, the widow, the foreigner, they can come along and they'll have something to eat. It's a way for you to share with those who are in need. Then it says this, as it turned out, you ought to underline those words. We're going to talk about them in a few weeks. Here's what it literally means in the Hebrew. You can forget this, but it means as chance chanced. Here's how we would say it. That sounds weird. It doesn't really flow. We'd say it as luck would have it. As luck would have it, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Get the picture. Look here. I want you to get this because there's something startling going to happen. You have the poor Moabite widow. She is very poor. She's a foreigner. She's going to glean in the fields, and she's going to glean in the field of Boaz. All of a sudden, Boaz, landowner, this strong, mighty warrior, shows up in the story. And when he shows up in the story, he does something that, that, that is amazing. First, he shows up and he greets the harvesters. He says this, the Lord be with you. That's exactly what a lot of you will hear from your boss tomorrow when you go to work, right? That's how they greet you, right? Hey, good morning. The Lord be with you, right? But look what they said back to him. And the Lord bless you. And this dude, he sounds like he'd been a good guy to work for, doesn't he? It sounded like there was some good morale there. And so verse five then, Boaz, as he's looking over his fields and he sees the people working in his fields, he calls the overseer over and he says, hey, you see that woman over there? Who does she belong to? He's not saying, whose property is she? This is what he's saying. He's saying, who takes care of her? Like he notices something isn't normal. There's someone here that isn't normally here, she's a foreigner, I don't recognize her, and I want to know who is taking care of her. The overseer replied, verse 6, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. So she came into the field, and she's been there from morning till now. I get the idea Ruth wasn't afraid of good hard work, right? Just file that away. I think that's interesting. Except she's taken a short rest in the shelter. So verse 8, 
Boaz said to Ruth, look here a second, it's black and white in your Bibles. I want you to read it in color. Because what I just read to you would have been like, he did what? It would have been like, oh! It had been that moment where it was like, are you serious? Like this wealthy Israelite landowner, the CEO of the company, he comes, undercover boss, right? He's checking out his situation, and he sees the poorest, the lowest, this widow, this foreigner, this one who's never been there, the one who didn't belong. And he asks about her, and then he goes over, and he begins to speak to her. It's fascinating. It's countercultural. And he says this, my daughter, listen to me. Look, look here, read this in color, guys. Can you put yourself in Ruth's shoes? She's been this Moabite widow. Do you wonder when the last time she heard a man talk to her tenderly might have been? And this man, Boaz, comes to her and he says, my daughter. You see, all of a sudden, you can begin to fill some color in on this story. All of a sudden, you can almost feel what Ruth is feeling. And then he says something that I think would have caught her by surprise. He says, don't go and glean in another field. Oh, excuse me? Did you say, get out of here and go find another field to glean in? No, 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 no. No, no, I'm saying don't go. Don't go away from here. And then he says this, stay here. I would circle those words. It's the same word that we get cling from in chapter one. He's saying, I want you to cling with the women who work for me. Stay connected to them. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. Guys, listen. Put yourself in Ruth's sandals. Gals in the room, put yourself in Ruth's sandals for a minute. Widow, working, just trying to eke out something for her and Naomi to survive on. And the CEO of the company, the mighty warrior Boaz, comes and he speaks tenderly. And he says, daughter, don't go to another field. Stay right here. Follow the guys as they're harvesting. Oh, by the way, I already talked to them. And I told those guys, if they lay a hand on you, They'll deal with me. Wow. And then he goes further and he says, oh, by the way, when you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Guys, oh, she would have been like, you mean the jars that the guys are filling? <laughs> like them guys filling those jars? I, I can get a drink there? He's like, yeah. Like, like, she can barely handle this. She's overwhelmed, verse 10. At this, she, like, hits the turf, man. She, she bows down. She's like, her face is to the ground. She says, why in the world have I found such favor, grace, mercy in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about you and all you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Look here, her reputation preceded her. And, 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 and Boaz said, I heard about you. And I've heard about everything you've been doing for your mother-in-law. Don't miss this. Boaz is sympathetic because he realizes that Ruth is doing all this and she also has lost her husband. Like, I know that you're hurting and you're serving your mother-in-law out of your hurt. How you left your mom and dad and your homeland and you came to live with the people you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. 
May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. This strong warrior of a man is speaking very tenderly to this widow woman. You also get the sense that, look here a second, that there's something else brewing here, don't you? If you don't, wake up, because there is. There's romance in the air. Now I got the gal's attention, and the guys are like, oh, Lord. (laughs) Verse 13, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. The way he spoke to her put her at ease. Though I don't have the standing of one of your servants, and then mealtime came, and he says something that is off the charts. He said, oh, Moabite widow, you foreigner, poor, gleaning in my field. I want you to come over here and sit at my table. Guys, I, I can't even explain to you how like, what? Have some bread and dip it in the wine. He's basically asking her out on his first date, isn't he? It's interesting. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered, circle that word in your Bibles. It's the only time it's used in the Old Testament. It's the only time it's used in the Old Testament. Here's what it means. He served her. She's been eking out a living for her mother-in-law. She's a widow. She is poor. She's destitute. She doesn't know anybody. And CEO of the company comes. And he says, my daughter, don't go to any other person's field. Stay here in mine. I've already warned them. They're dudes out there. When you're thirsty, you get over there. Those guys will fill the water jars for you. And come on, why don't you sit at my table? And then he gets up from the table and he begins to serve her. She ate all she wanted. She had some leftover. Take a doggy bag home. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves, don't reprimand her, even pull out some socks for her from the bundles. He's like, why don't you just drop some? I want to make sure she has more than enough and leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley, got it ready that she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah. We're like, what in the world is an ephah? About 30, 40 pounds. Basically, what she goes home with is two weeks' wages. Like, she wanted a handful to take care of her and Naomi. We need something to eat tonight. She's going to walk home with two weeks' wages. I love verse 18. And she carried it back to town. Can we just say this? This is interesting. She ain't no wimp. (laughs) Like, Like, you get the idea? Like, she slung that thing over her shoulder. She had her doggy bag in the other hand, and she's heading back to town. I love Ruth. Her mother-in-law saw how much she gathered, and Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. So her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Naomi said, the Lord bless him. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And then she added this, the man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers, our kinsman redeemers. Like, what's that? This is another way God had of taking care of the vulnerable. All this means is this, is that if my brother was married and had a family and my brother happened to die, then I would have the opportunity and responsibility to make sure his family was taken care of. And in the event that I was not already married, I might very well marry her 
his wife, widow, to take care of their family. It was God's way of taking care of those that were vulnerable. You can all of a sudden see Naomi beginning to scheme in her brain a little bit. We're going to get to that later, verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. This guy was gracious. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it would be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. And Boaz already told her that. So then verse 23, look at this. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Look here a second. You ever watch a TV show and it like ends and you're like, what? Like tune in next week for the rest of the story. How many of you hate that? I hate that. That's what's going on here. Because that's where chapter two ends. She goes home, lives with her mother-in-law. Tune in next week. Tune in next week. We'll finish the story. But as you look at chapter two, guys, I think there are some fascinating things. In fact, I think there are some very important things for us to observe in chapter two. I'm going to give you all three answers right out the gate. I never do that, but I'm feeling really, really generous today, okay? (laughs) Really generous. First, I think we see a pattern in chapter two for singles to consider. If you're single in the room, I want to talk to you. If you're a parent in the room, I want to talk to you. Second, I think we get a peek into the heart of God. And third, I think we get a picture of the story of God, that actually the book of Ruth is about a bigger story. That's what I think we see in Ruth chapter 2. It's fascinating. It's full of drama. But I think there's some things, there's a well that we can draw from this morning. First, I think there's a pattern for singles to consider. Here's what's interesting in in Ruth chapter 2. Stay with me on this. I think this is important. Ruth chapter 2, if you just read it, you realize that it is a chapter or part, this part of the story is about three single adults. Isn't that interesting? That in one chapter, we have the narrative, the story of three single adults, Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth. I think that's fascinating in and of itself and how they kind of respond and get along with life. But I also think it's very interesting that we're reading this chapter today because if you're a statistics person, you might like knowing this, that this is the first time in modern history where the number of single adults outnumber married adults. That's interesting, isn't it? And not only that, but I think Ruth chapter 2 is extremely relevant. Here's why I think it's relevant. You know why? Because in this room, I'm looking and I know a lot of you. In this room, we have some single adults. Some of you are teenagers, young adults, and you hope someday to be married. And so in this room, there's plenty of single adults. Some of you were married at one time, but now you find yourself single, maybe because you've gone through the heartbreak of a death or maybe the heartbreak of a divorce. You know why else I think this chapter is very interesting? Dial in right now because I'm looking around this room and there's parents, middle school parents, high school parents. Even some of you got really little kids, not too early to begin thinking about this because as we look at Ruth chapter Two, I think there's some interesting things for singles to consider. We live in a time when single people are looking for somebody to spend their life with. And here's what we assume. We assume that the way we do it in our culture sometimes is the only way and it's the best way. Say that again. We assume that the way we do it in our culture is the only way and it's the best way for us to look for somebody to spend our life with. Well, let me just tell you, first, it's not the only way. Second, I'm not sure it's always the best way. We don't have a great track record, okay? 
In fact, there are several ways that people find somebody to spend their life with. One way, and, and cultures today still do this, is something called prearranged marriages. Can I get an amen? Okay, kind of quiet, right? Here, here's the deal. Pre, this is all this mom and dad choose who you spend the rest of your life with. All right, let, let's do a little test. How many single adults in the room think that's a good way to do it? Anybody? Okay. No takers, first service either. Let me ask you this because your perspective, how many parents in the room think that might not be a bad option? <laughs> I love it. Your perspective changes, doesn't it? I was reading a guy, and he has a friend who's a pastor in India who has been married to his wife for a lot of years, like 50 years or something like that, and it was a prearranged marriage. It was arranged for them. And he was talking to him about it, and he said, hey, the difference between us here and you there is this. It's just, just interesting. He said, in America, you choose who you're going to love. Here, we love the one that was chosen. It's interesting. I began thinking, wow, before you're critical of that method, I'm not sure our track record says that we're in a place of judgment. (laughs) You see, another way is simply dating, right? It's simply dating. Dating is where guy sees gal, ask her out, they go get some food together, they hang out together, they spend all their time together, they do whatever. Here's the deal. Dating is a modern phenomenon. Did you know that? The word date or dating kind of originated about 1896 when a Chicago columnist was having girlfriend troubles and his girlfriend began socially doing things with other men and he said those other men are filling my dates my times with her and then it evolved I'm not making this up it evolved the word date or dating evolved to refer to what women of the night did I had somebody in the first service sit here and say what's that well I'll just be real if your kids are here cover their ears or take them it's, it's prostitutes and it referred to what they did in prostitution. Well, I don't really like the origins of that word, <laughs> but it evolved. Urbanization of our country, and all of a sudden, dating meant I'm going to go out socially. There's restaurants to choose from. Vehicles are, are, are invented, and so we can drive together to go places. Sexual revolution kind of leaned into the way we look at dating. In fact, even today, you can date somebody and not be in the same room with them, right? We have this thing called online dating, right? It's fascinating, right? It's evolved. But sometimes parents aren't involved at all versus a prearranged, which is interesting to me. Parents, can I talk to you for a second? Which is interesting to me because dating is a pathway to potentially my child's second most important decision they'll ever make in their life. Seems like something I'd want to help give input in, doesn't it? And then there's this idea of courtship that kind of involves the kid and the parents together. Hey, I'm not here to make a case for any of them, but I know this, that in this room there are some single young adults, there are parents, and I think this particular part of the story gives us some things to consider when looking for a guy. So I have six questions to ask, and I want you to write them down. We'll flesh them out. Six questions to ask when looking for a guy, gal, dating a guy or a gal. First is this. From Ruth chapter 2, do they love God? Guys, this is the most important question. Boaz loved God. Here's how we know that. Boaz's love for God and his relationship with God is something that infiltrated his workplace. He took his love for God into his workplace. He like shows up at work and he said, hey, the Lord be with you guys. And they're saying, hey, the Lord bless you. 
Like this dude wasn't just like showing up to church because his girlfriend wanted him to go to church, right? Can I talk to you gals for a second? Single gals in the room? The guy that you're interested in chasing or dating, can I ask you this question? Does he love Jesus? Is that his first love? Is he simply paying lip service to Jesus or has he surrendered his life to Jesus? Can I ask you this? Does he simply come to church because that makes you happy? Or is he somebody that is passionate about wanting to know God, wanting to love God, wanting to follow God? Boaz loved God. Ruth loved God. She left everything in her commitment and love to pursue God. She left everything she knew. Guys, can I ask you a question? Does the gal that you're chasing, wanting to date, interested in, do they love God? Are they committed to God? Do they care more about what God says than what other people have to say? Can I tell you this? This is the most important question. Do they love God? I think there's some other questions that you can flesh out in the chapter. I would ask this question, are they a hard worker? Are they a hard worker? Boaz, here's a good place to start, gals. Boaz had a job. (laughs) It's a good place to start. I find a guy who has a job. Is he willing to work? Is he a hard worker when he works? Does he always complain? Listen close, young gals. Does he always complain about having to go to work or having to work hard? You're saying, Dan, what's that such a big deal? Because write this down somewhere. Marriage is hard work. Ask any married person in the room. Ruth was a hard worker. You see that in a story. Like, I love the fact that when Boaz, I love this. Like, I, I love reading this stuff. When Boaz first meets her, she's like pitted out. She's like sweating, right? She's got dirt under her fingernails, right? That's their first meeting. Her hair's up in a bun. She's like working away. And he's like, who's that? Guys, I would ask this question. Is the gal that I'm interested in, is she industrious? Is she a hard worker? You know, something Ruth was not a whiner, was she? Ruth wasn't. She could have been, oh, poor me and Neil, nothing over here. Who's going to take care of? Not Ruth. You know what she did? You know something, Mom? I think I'm going to go glean. It's not easy. I know it's dangerous. I know there's some risk involved. I'm going to do it because I want to do whatever I can to provide for us. So I'd ask myself, is the person that I'm dating, is the person I'm interested a hard worker? Third, do they have a good reputation? Boaz had a good reputation. He had a good, he goes to work and they're like glad the boss showed up. Like that's a little unusual, right? Like he has this good reputation. Gals, listen close, dial in. Is, is the guy you're dating have a good reputation at his work, with his family, in the community? Guys, I've had a gazillion conversations, and here's one that I hear from gals. Nobody understands him, but I get him. (laughs) Right? It just doesn't seem like his boss understands him. They just don't get how he's wired. And his mom, she's always nagging. She doesn't get him. And, well, the teachers at school, they, you know, I don't think they quite understand 
my guy. But I do. Listen, 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 listen. If that's the case, careful. Careful. Because there very well may come a time when you don't get him either. <laughs> Does he have a good reputation? What's his reputation? Like when, when you show up to his workplace, it's like, man, that's, that, that dude, he can work anybody under the table. That guy is a man of integrity. That guy, what's his reputation? How about you guys, the gal that you're, what's her reputation? Ruth's reputation preceded her. Do you see that? Like Boaz, like, I heard about you. Like even in your own pain, you're serving your mother-in-law. Like, wow. Like you're loyal, you're a hard worker, you're kind, you're generous, you left everything you knew. Like, like Boaz is looking at her and saying, you have an incredible reputation. Guys, what about that gal that you're interested in? She's hot. Okay. What's her reputation? What's her family saying about her? What's her friends saying about her? She has younger siblings. What do they tend to think of her? Oh, man, my mean old sister, you know? What's her reputation? Can I ask you this? This is worth writing down. Guys, all the gals in the room, they'll know I'm right. They might not want to shake their head, but they'll know I'm right. I would ask this question. Does she get along with other girls? If you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> right? Don't send me an email either. I don't want it this week. <laughs> Boaz said, go hang out with the women in my field. That's what he said. It's interesting. I, I, I meet with guys all the time. It's like, I don't know, man. All her, all her friends are guys. She can't seem to get along with gals. Whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Does she have a good reputation? I would ask this question. Do they have a strong character? I love this about Boaz. He was a man of standing. He was a warrior, and yet he was able to talk tender. Guys, listen, listen, listen. Gals in the room, listen to me. Is the guy that you're at, is, is, is he a strong warrior who's able to be tender? <laughs> Boaz, I've been scouting the group here to make sure I don't get in trouble right now. Okay. <laughs> Boaz was a man's man. Like, like Boaz didn't wear a sweater vest, drink seltzer water, and wear penny loafers. That's not Boaz, right? I said that first service. Guy came out in a sweater vest, said, what about me, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> Nothing against sweater vests. Like, like this dude was a man's man. Listen close, gals. I want you to hear me. I want to speak almost like a father if I can have that privilege right now. Is the guy you're interested in, that you're looking at, that you're inquiring about, that you're dating, maybe even you've been with for a while, is he a strong man? Boaz was able to be strong for her, listen, 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 while being tender to her. That's character. Oh my God, he's a strong guy. He's just not into talking like that, but I think he might learn to we stay married long enough. <laughs> you see, see, we rash, we get, we get crazy thoughts going on in our head, and it's like, gals, I we're having some fun, but I, 
Does he have a strong character? I love the fact that he looked at men and he said, don't mess with her. And then I can almost picture him looking at her as she's gleaning in the field and she's saying, daughter, I don't want you leaving this field. I realize you're someone else's daughter. I'm going to make sure nobody messes with you. And I'm going to make sure you have everything you need. I love the fact, I won't get in real trouble now, that she had strong character. She was gentle yet strong. Ruth is gentle, she's humble, she's loyal, and yet Ruth is a woman of great strength. Do you read that? She has like this incredible strength, but the strength that she has is this quiet, settled spirit. It's the strength that 1 Peter 3 talks about of a gentle, quiet spirit. It's not meek and mousy, but it's this woman who knows who she is. She's secure. Guys, that is, that's attractive. This woman who is strong, she knows who she, listen, it's not the strength that says, I am woman, hear me roar. I don't want an email on that one, all right? I checked the room out, and I'm of you wearing this shirt. Guys, I get it. If you have the t-shirt, oh, whatever. That's not strength. That's insecurity, making sure I tell you what. And, but she's got this, like, strength. She, she's resilient. She's robust. And yet she's gentle, and she's humble, and she's loyal. I love that. Guys, does she have strong character? Does she have strong character? Or does she feel like she's always got to be the loudest one in the room? That she's got to get everybody's attention by being brash, the one that's always talking. I think Ruth chapter 2 also makes us ask this question, are they generous and kind? Boaz is generous. I don't need to make that point. You saw it in the story. Gals, is the guy you're dating generous and kind? Can I just ask this? Is he concerned with others? Let me ask it this way. Can you tell I have a lot of conversations with high school students and young adults? And I hear this. I ask girls this question. When you go out, do they listen to you and ask you good questions? Or do they just talk about themselves? You see, if you want to know they're concerned about others, they're kind and they're generous. They're going to do what Boaz did. You know what he did? He served her. He prayed for her. It was her, 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 her. I think you can make a case for the fact that she was generous. She was a giver, not a taker. She was willing to do whatever to give to her mother-in-law. And that's what caught Boaz's eye. Guys, the gal that you're interested in, is she a griper or is she grateful? Is she a giver or is she a taker? Is she just concerned about what she gets? There's one last thing that I, I got to mention. And that's this. Are they willing to wait for God's timing? I love the fact that it ends with Boaz going home and her going back to Naomi's house. Ruth went home and stayed with her mother-in-law. Boaz goes back home. It makes me think of what the Song of Solomon says, and that's this. Song of Solomon says, not to awaken love before it's time. 
So can I talk to the gals for a second in the room, the single gals? Is he pressuring you to do things physically? Is he putting pressure on you to sleep with him before he's willing to put a ring on your finger promising to be your husband into an unknowable future? I'm going to tell you something. That's not a man who's willing to lead you. That's a little boy who wants to fulfill his needs. You see, here's the deal. I would say the same to guys. Is she only willing to flirt and talk about the physical part of your relationship? Does the way she talks awaken something before it's time? Say, Dan, why do you make such a big deal of that? Well, if they're not willing to listen to God on this, what makes you think they might be willing to listen to God on other things? I get asked this question then, and then I need to race on. (laughs) Tonight, if you're a young adult in the room, we're going to be meeting at the Norton Middle School, play volleyball, do some fun stuff, and we're going to talk about this kind of stuff. It's going to be fun. I and Jason are going to talk with the gals. My wife and Rachel, Jason's wife, are going to talk with the guys. It's going to be a blast. We're going to have a good time. We're just going to dive in. If I get asked this by single gals sometimes in our group, where do I find the guy like Boaz? I don't think he exists. I just had somebody say that this morning to me. Oh, he does. But here's what I would say. I'd say, quit preoccupying yourself with that and become the kind of gal that a guy like Boaz is looking for. Start there. I'd say the same thing to guys. Where do I find a gal like Ruth? I'd say quit preoccupying with that and become the kind of guy a gal like Ruth is looking for. I have been a pastor for over 20 years and my heart breaks every time I sit in my office and see a home destroyed because somebody didn't ask questions beforehand. I don't apologize one bit for the conversation this morning. Even if you don't agree with all my questions, I don't apologize. 20-some years of meeting in my office inspires and motivates me to have this conversation. My biggest fear is, is that somehow you'll tune it out and make it irrelevant. You see, Ruth gives us a pattern for singles to consider, and then I think there's two other things, and then we're done. I think it gives us a peek into the heart of God. Here's all I mean by that, and I'm going to race Andy in a minute. That's my friend in the back who's working with me on this lesson. But God has a special place for the marginalized. Let me just read you one verse, Leviticus 23, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. It's interesting that the heart of God is for the vulnerable, defenseless, God's heart over and over again in the Old Testament, just remember this, is for the orphan, children, no parents, for the widow, woman, no husband, the poor, people who don't have enough, and the foreigner, the alien, those who are there who aren't citizens there. God's heart over and over and over again are for the marginalized. So he said, leave in your fields the margins. Why? For the marginalized. Listen close, and then then we'll go on to the next point. 
God had an amazing way to care for people who didn't have enough. He said, I want my people who have plenty to share with those who don't have enough by leaving the margins of their field for them. But don't miss this. His method also was that those who didn't have enough would have the opportunity to work for what they need. Isn't that interesting? Brilliant. It's brilliant. Guys, it's, it's why here we're part of a million meal project with our community. We're almost a third of the way there, not even halfway through the first year. It's awesome. Helping kiddos here, there, and everywhere. Many of you have been part of it. We make meals for the Norton schools, for families here in Norton. We feed, uh, we put food in the food banks in our greater Akron community. We've made food to go overseas. That's why we do it. Why? Here's why. I want you to remember this. When we care for the marginalized, we're, listen close, we're not keeping a rule of God. We're reflecting the heart of God. We're not keeping a rule of God. We're reflecting the heart of God. His heart is for the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor. Boaz reflected the heart of God. And we reflect the heart of God when we realize that the story of Ruth is actually about a bigger picture. And the story of Ruth is actually the story of God. And Ruth chapter 2 gives us a picture of the story of God. You're saying, Dan, what do you mean by that? How in the world does it give us a picture of the story of God? Can I show you how? It's interesting to me that Boaz, this CEO, highest man on the totem pole, takes notice of Ruth, lowest lady on the ladder. She was a foreigner. She had nothing to offer. She needed everything he had to give. And here's what it says three times in chapter two. She was the object of his favor. Guys, that's the gospel. We are the objects of God's favor. The Bible says that we're foreigners, we're poor, we have nothing to offer, and the God of the universe literally stepped into our world. The strong one stepped into our world, and you can almost see him kneeling speaking tenderly and with kindness, Ephesians 1 says, and giving us what we don't deserve, what we could never earn, what we could not achieve, and giving us that in abundance. That's the gospel. I don't know what you think about God this morning, but I know this. That the story of God is not a God who steps back detached, waiting for you to mess up, waiting for you to eke out some righteousness, but he is a God who stepped into your world, looked into your eyes, and said, you are the object of my love, my grace, my favor. Then the story's fascinating because Boaz doesn't just do that. Do you know what he does? He invites her to his table. Like, come and eat. And it's interesting because at the table is where we find acceptance. When you would have invited somebody to sit at the table with you, you would have said, I accept you. Listen close, listen close. Boaz and Ruth's relationship turned at the table. Everything changed she was invited to the table. She went from being a foreigner to a friend. It makes me think of another table. 
where Jesus is with his disciples. He's hours from dying. And he literally bends down and he washes all their feet. And then after he washes their feet, he sits with them and he takes some bread and he breaks it and he passes it around. And he said, guys, this is my body that's about ready to be crucified in your place. Then he takes some wine and he drinks it and he gives them to drink. And he said, every time you drink this, I want you to remember me because this represents my blood that in a few short hours is going to be shed for you. You see, here's the deal. The table where the body and the blood of Christ are represent the fact that you and I, our relationship with God turns at the table. That it's at the table where we say yes to Jesus. I believe you died for me, shed your blood for me. And it's at the table where we find acceptance. You know why? Because Jesus was rejected. It's at the table where we find a seat. You know why? Because he left his seat to come and die in my place. It's at the table where we're invited into a relationship. Why? Because he was cast out. It's the gospel. Today, I don't know what you think about God, but Jesus invites you to this table and he says, I want you to say yes. I died in your place. You're the object of my favor. There's something else fascinating because Boaz invited her to eat at the table. But do you see this in the story? He says, listen, girl, listen, daughter, don't leave. Don't leave my field. Because here in my field, you'll find protection and absolute satisfaction. It reminds me of the story of Jesus. Because Jesus encourages us to stay and be satisfied. You see, here's what I know. I'm looking across this room and there are some of you that at one time in your life you said yes to Jesus, but you started to think there's gonna be satisfaction in other fields. Like, like maybe if I could just get really religious, then I'll be satisfied. Or some of you are like, man, it's about relationships and sex and all kinds of stuff, and then I'll be satisfied. I'm going to run into that field. Or maybe others, it's like, I'm, I'm a businessman, I'm going to make a name for myself, and I'm going to run into that field and be satisfied. And all the while, Jesus is saying, don't run to other fields. Right here is where you're going to find protection, satisfaction. And this morning, that might be you. And Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, says, I want you to come and stay in my field. See, it's fascinating. If you read the book of John, in John chapter 3, he talks to a guy who's very religious, yet very unsatisfied. That's some of you. You've been going to church since you were a kid, yet something's missing. John chapter 3, Jesus says to this religious man, your satisfaction and joy is not going to be found in your religion. It's going to be found in a relationship with me. Stay at my table. One chapter later, one chapter later, he's talking to a woman who's very different than that man. And that woman has been in five different relationships. She's living with a guy who's not her husband. 
She's trying to find satisfaction in relationships and men. And, and Jesus looks at her and says, listen, that's not going to bring you the satisfaction that you're looking for. But satisfaction that you're looking for, joy that you're looking for, purpose that you're looking for, stay in my field. And this morning Jesus says, I want you to stay in my field. You see, the story of Ruth is a small little story that's part of this big story, and it points to the bigger story of God. I'm going to invite the band to make their way out. We're going to finish with a song, and then we're done. My fear is this. I'd ask you not to leave during this song, if at all possible. We'll make sure your kids are cared for. My my worry is this sometimes, that the story of God doesn't blow us away. Like the story of God is this, is that the God of the universe looked down the tunnel of time and he saw you. And he said, you are the object of my favor, my grace. And that the God of the universe looked down the tunnel of time and he saw you. And he said, I want to invite you to my table. The things on this table were very expensive. They cost me my life. And the God of the universe looked at you and he said, I want you to stay right here because that's where satisfaction is going to be found. That's where joy is going to be found. That's where protection is going to be. So as we sing this morning, we're going to sing a song about, oh, how he loves you and me, right? And, and what can happen sometimes is we can sing songs and we can think about songs like, wow, I like that song. But here's my prayer, God, this morning that in this space, in this room, that a bunch of people would allow this song to wash over their minds and their heart and that something would come alive in us that maybe has been dead when we realize how much you love us. And so God, this morning, I pray for those that are sitting here in this room who have never taken the invitation to say yes to Jesus. Might they right there in their seat say, yes, Jesus, I want to say yes this morning. I want to trust you as my Savior and Lord. God, I pray for people who've gone to other fields looking for satisfaction and fulfillment, that they might say, yes, Jesus, I want to lean into this relationship with you, the only place I can find joy. God, for singles that are in this room and they're like, I don't know that I'll find that guy, that gal, might they stay at this table and not look in other fields? And might they allow you May they allow you to satisfy their soul. God, I pray that as a result, as a result, that our lives would reflect the heart of a God who cares about people immensely. I pray this in Jesus' name.